You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We begin today our second series on Ukraine. Ukraine has, since apparently the 6th century, been the site of many incursions from the East and the West, from Genghis Khan to Ottomans to Swedes to Poles and more. Ukraine's history has been one of constant invasion and change at the hands of outsiders. Back in 2007, at the Munich Security Conference and since, Vladimir Putin has suggested that Ukraine is not a country and has no legitimacy outside of its centuries-old relationship with the Muscovy. Now, despite Ukraine's years of independence from Moscow, Putin persists in this narrative. Before we discuss this ancient history in detail, the weapons being used by and against Ukraine, and what the possible outcomes of this conflict may be, we're going to start with an overview of the history of Ukraine and discuss what could happen as this war continues to drag on. My guest tonight is Eugene Rumer of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Mr. Rumer is a senior fellow and the director of Carnegie's Russia and Eurasia program. And prior to joining Carnegie, Rumor was the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the U.S. National Intelligence Council from 2010 to 2014. And earlier, he held research appointments at the National Defense University, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the RAND Corporation. He's also served on the National Security Council staff and at the State Department. He's taught at Georgetown University and George Washington University. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thanks for inviting me. All right. Well, let's start with Putin's statements at the 2007 Munich Security Conference. If you could paint a picture for us of the geopolitical landscape in Europe and Russia at that time, his remarks, and what you think might have motivated them. So back to 2007, which is a pretty good decade in Russia, which at the turn of the century emerged from a terrible decade of the 1990s, if you remember the 1990s and Boris Yeltsin, the erratic, often drunk, often incapacitated president of Russia, who was the embodiment of Russia and Russian foreign policy at the time. So you have this leader, you have the country that's stumbling through a series of economic and political crises that has a terrible insurgency in the North Caucasus, Chechnya, which it is unable to conquer, to bring back into the fold. This really terrible decade of the 1990s, and then comes Putin, younger, much more with it, and also the good fortune that he's enjoying is really the wall of money, as one senior Russian official described, that's washing over Russia beginning in the early 2000s because the price of oil goes up, the price of commodities goes up, and Russia is nothing if not the treasure trove of commodities and oil. And, you know, all that money plus the reforms that were very painful in the 1990s, all that really spurs the kind of economic growth that Russia had not seen probably ever. And it brings the kind of prosperity to a lot of Russians even in small cities and towns, or somebody else said, even in small cities and towns, there's now something to steal. And <laughs> Putin rides this wave of money to, you know, at that point, 2007, his second presidential term, and to really, you know, great popularity among the Russians, because he is the one who brought him from the brink of disaster, from humiliation of the 1990s, from the retreat from the world stage. And, you know, I believe in 2006, he brings all the world leaders, you know, the, the G7, at that point, G8, to St. Petersburg. It's the showcase of the new Russia. And in 2007, he goes to the Munich Security Conference and kind of asserts himself as a major actor on the world stage. And the big kind of pet peeve of his at that point is that the United States and its allies... Western Europe, Europe, have expanded their Euro-Atlantic institutions way, way too far to the east, so that at that point, you have Poland, Hungary, Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and the Baltic countries, 
all in NATO and all in the European Union. NATO has, uh, on the verge of promising to Ukraine and Georgia, the two former Soviet republics, two former kind of core territories of the old Soviet and Russian empire, they're about to be promised membership in the alliance. So Putin kind of lays down a marker and says, you guys have gone way too far. You are encroaching on what are legitimate, longstanding interests of Russia, and this has got to stop. So this kind of mentality really reflects kind of the core, the inner Putin, who is at his heart and in his mind is an old Soviet official, someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, was born in 1952. He just turned 70. Someone who is a child of working class couple, grew up in poverty, and he's someone to whom the Soviet system was really very, very good. The Soviet system gave him a first-class education by the standard of that time at a prestigious university. And then he got a job at one of the most prestigious institutions in the Soviet Union, the KGB. And not only that, but he gets a foreign posting. Now, looking back, a foreign posting in the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, or on the satellites of the Soviet Union wasn't a big deal. But consider where Putin is coming from, a poor kid from the streets of then Leningrad. And suddenly he is an officer in the KGB, looking across the border into West Germany, looking at NATO. And he was brought up to think that NATO is the NATO, the United States, those are the enemies. And of course, in, in the late 80s, just as he is approaching, you know, yet another chapter probably in his very promising career as a KGB officer, everything falls apart. The wall comes down, and then the Soviet Union falls apart. The country that he served so loyally throughout his entire career, the country that he was brought up believing in, it's no more. And NATO and the United States are really running the show in Europe. NATO and the United States are pushing to expand the alliance and to admit countries that had previously been part of the Soviet empire. Soviet satellites. So for him, it's really an unacceptable redrawing of the geopolitical balance in Europe as he, this old Soviet KGB officer, was brought up to believe in and to, to see as the legitimate natural order in Europe. And this was on his mind in 2007. That's what's on his mind in 2007. And at that point, not only have the United States and NATO admitted the Baltic countries that were kind of special and apart in the old Soviet Union. But now they're talking about Ukraine. And to a Soviet Russian KGB officer with this imperial mindset, Ukraine is part of the Russian heartland. That's part of the Russian core territory. That's something that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. That's why he referenced this ancient history. Yes. Raising all the old grievances, yes. going all the way back to the Grand Duchy of Yes. Lithuania yes. and all of that just back to the time when the Muscovy people were in Ukraine and the Cossacks, I guess, and the right. Muscovy a, came yeah, together. There, there, there's a long and complicated history. The misfortune of Ukraine is that it's situated, I mean, talk about geography being destiny. It is situated between still the more powerful Russian state and throughout the course of history, more powerful empires to the west of Ukraine. You know, talk about the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire more recently, previously the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Sweden. So this is the, the ground where a lot of wars were fought throughout the centuries. And that actually is something that I think is very important to understand the current Russian mindset and why, and maybe I'm putting too much into this, but why I think geography of Ukraine, geography of Europe is so important. So he gives a speech, and it probably strikes a lot of people in the West as, at the very least, somewhat eccentric. He's bringing up ancient grievances. Yeah. He's focusing on history that to the West isn't, it's not taught. Uh, it's not something that is Don't know much about history. Don't know much about history. Don't know much about <laughs> <Right>? geography. <laughs> or geography. You know, we've had presidents who couldn't tell the difference between Slovenia, Slovakia, and anything else. And so all at once, he's raising these issues of concern 
And this is not long, seven years after the end of the Clinton administration when he had expanded NATO yeah. six, seven times uh, during that administration. He was obviously a well-liked president. It was fewer influence. than six, seven times, but yeah. But, yeah. but, but depending if you count the countries, yes. Yeah. Six, seven countries. Yeah. Um, maybe one or two of them at a time, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> so let's go back, though, because we're talking about the geography of Ukraine. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's, it's a big country. It's been the breadbasket of Europe in the sense that they grow a tremendous amount of wheat, cotton, other things that are commodities that are purchased, and but it's also got warm water seaports, yes. which are obviously very important to Russia, at least until the planet warms completely, and then everybody will have a, a warm water seaport. It's going to be a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a while. But let's go back. You've talked a little bit about that. Can you talk a little bit about why it is, more specifically, given the geography that Ukraine is seen as a part of Russia by people inside of Russia, as part of one country, one people's? You know, it's difficult for great powers, major powers, to abandon this imperial mindset. And Russia has been an empire since the day of Peter the Great, if not longer, depending on how you count. So that's something that's very much part of Russian history and Russian identity. And just because in December of 1991, the leaders of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia got together and signed that paper in Belarus and said that the Soviet Union is no more. It doesn't mean that everybody else has basically bought into it. And, you know, breaking up is hard to do. Arguably, we're looking now at the continuing breakup of the, the, the kind of, you know, back in 1991, the breakup was relatively easy, the formal breakup, but we're still dealing with the long-term consequences of that history. That is so closely, the history of two countries is very closely intertwined. Now, you know, why do Russians think about Crimea as theirs? Well, you know, the Russian Empire conquered Crimea from the Ottoman Empire at the end of the 18th century. One of Putin's advisors, I think, jokingly, when asked who advises Putin, he said, well, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and I forget who the third, or Stalin, <laughs> or someone like that. You know, th this is how Russian history is taught. You know, some of the great conquests throughout Russian history took place on a territory that is now Ukraine. Uh, some of the greatest Russian military commanders, Alexander Suvorov, Mikhail Kutuzov, they fought wars on, on, on this territory against the Ottoman Empire. Leo Tolstoy, the, probably the greatest Russian writer, served as an artillery officer during the Crimean War, the war that was fought between Russia and Germany and, sorry, uh, Russia and uh, Great Britain and France. Uh, in Austria also. And one of his most famous books uh, published Tales from Sevastopol, Sevastopolsky Raskazy. And, and that's something that Russian teenagers read about in their liter Russian literature courses. It's this joint history that, that's become deeply embedded in Russian culture, kind of the Russian national uh, narrative. An identity. Uh, it, mm -hmm. uh, yes. And then in the 19th century, I mean, you mentioned Ukraine as the breadbasket. That's all absolutely true. There's also, of course, the fact that during the second half of the 19th century, what is now eastern Ukraine became one of the major engines of industrial development and modernization of uh, the Russian Empire. It was the Russian industrial heartland. And all the way through the 20th century, almost into the 21st century, for example, the major defense industrial enterprises left over there since the days, uh, since the Soviet Union, were still producing parts for Russian, now previously Soviet, but now Russian ICBMs. That, that's how closely intertwined the economies of the two countries were. And that's why this divorce is extremely difficult. Now, if you look at this from the Ukrainian side, you know, Russian nationalists claim that Ukrainian is not a language. Well, I've got to say that, you know, I'm a native Russian speaker. And when I'm in Ukraine and when I hear Ukrainian, I barely understand it. 
that that's from personal experience. There is a body of Ukrainian literature that was suppressed. The Ukrainian language was suppressed for a long time within the, the Russian Empire. Stalinification, uh, Russification. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you know, the greatest Ukrainian poet, uh, 19th century poet Taras Shevchenko, uh, there's a monument to Taras Shevchenko not far from where we're sitting on 23rd Street. Mm. He was suppressed throughout his life in the 19th century. So they... Uh, there has to be, to your point, there has to be uh, some view in Ukraine, obviously, that they've been subjugated yes. by Russia. Yes. And there has to be on as much as there is on the other side on Russia's identity of Ukraine as part of the motherland. There has to be resentment of being uh, treated poorly by Russia and taken advantage of on the Ukrainian yes. side. And so that narrative, though, I wonder how cohesive it is since there's been such a Stalinification and a loss of this identity. I bet that's a little less cohesive than it is on the Russian side. Oh, I think it's very cohesive. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's very cohesive. Ukrainian national identity has survived, survived through centuries, survived remarkably during Stalinist purges, and since Stalin too. Some of the leaders of the Ukrainian national renaissance in the 1980s uh, came out of Soviet prison camps because they uh, had been put there uh, for, for being what they were, Ukrainian patriots, Ukrainian nationalists. There were a number of events that I think gave a major push in the 1980s during Gorbachev perestroika to this rebirth of Ukrainian identity, some of it reinforcing the sense of grievance. You remember the Chernobyl tragedy? Right. Who could forget it? It was and, massive. And, and that, you know, that occurred on Ukrainian territory, and that gave rise to a very popular, very large, unprecedented in the Soviet era, uh, environmentalist movement, uh, green movement. Um, but that, again, fed into the sense of grievance against Moscow that, you know, look what Moscow has done here in Ukraine to pursue its Russian-Soviet interests. So uh, that Ukrainian identity really survived and persevered and emerged in the 1980s, but really survived through centuries. And arguably, uh, perhaps, it is this constant oppression by Russia that generated the resistance among Ukrainian intelligentsia, uh, among Ukrainian people, the creative classes also. Um, you know, the Chernobyl tragedy uh, gave a big push to this sense of national reawakening in the 1980s because it really was a tragedy. It was a catastrophe inflicted on Ukraine by the Soviet regime. And that gave a big push to uh, the rise of Ukrainian national environmentalist movement. So all of that kind of fed into uh, this narrative of national rebirth in the 1980s, and not just the narrative, but also the actual movement of national rebirth. I had a chance to visit Kiev in the late 80s and early 90s before the breakup, and it was just remarkable to see young people participating in these protests, peaceful protests, but you know, really their identity uh, as Ukrainians awakened by those events. Well, you mentioned something earlier that I think is also not well understood in this country, which is Stalin engaged in these purges. Millions of people yeah. were killed. What was the impact of that, and what did he do in Ukraine? Well, of course, the one of the, you know, we, we haven't mentioned this, but one of the defining experiences, if you can call it that, defining tragedies in Ukrainian history in the 20th century was Holodomor the death of millions of Ukrainians by famine, which was the result of Stalinist policies of collectivization and rapid industrialization that resulted in literally millions of people dying in Ukraine of starvation. Uh, now, it's unimaginable that a country that really has been the breadbasket, not just for Russia, for the Russian Empire, but for Europe and for the world, experienced such a tragedy and so many people died of starvation, but it is a fact. And that, I think, left really an indelible kind of memory imprint um, on, the, on the Ukrainians, on kind of the sense of national consciousness. Uh, there's a monument to Holodomor here in Washington near the Union Station. That, if anything, is going to sound cruel, but that reinforces, not to say benefits by any means, this kind of sense of their awareness and national grievance against Russia that 
helped Ukraine survive with its identity as an independent nation, culture, and now post-1991 independent state. Tragically, I shouldn't say ironically, the war that Putin started, actually he started the war in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, with the seizure and illegal annexation of Crimea. And then he turned the aggression into an outright war on February 24th of last year. But that, if anything, helped motivate this kind of Ukrainian identity as, as, as a nation on the platform of opposition to Russia. So he's accomplishing exactly the opposite of what he claims uh, he wants to accomplish with that war. Some of the things that he says presently, and he said them in the recent past as well, is he's characterized Ukrainians as Nazis. Yeah. Where does this come from? It, it sounds so utterly false and offensive, but why would he do that? And is it not correct that Ukraine suffered horribly at the hands of the Nazis and that this is especially offensive to persons inside Ukraine? Yes, it is a horrible kind of piece of Russian propaganda that Putin personally has inserted into the narrative. It is directed at his own people, at Russians. Why? Because he wants to portray this war as a successor war to what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War, World War II. You have to look at how Putin has shaped the Russian national narrative since 2000 when he became president of Russia, since 1991 when Russia emerged without really kind of a clear identity, this post-imperial country. And Russian propagandists, Russian ideologists have resorted to the fact that the legacy of World War II, or as they call it, the Great Patriotic War, still resonates very much with generations of Russians as this kind of conflict that restores Russia's just place in Europe and restores justice between Russia and Ukraine and brings Ukraine into the fold is somehow intended to make it look like it's a just war. It's something that we are doing to restore the legacy, rebuild, repair the legacy of our forefathers who fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. Putin's own parents were starved Putin's for two years Putin's by the Nazis. Parents, right? Yeah, survivors um, of the Leningrad blockade during which, you know, a million people or so died of starvation. So it's intended to kind of paint that as, as, as something that is a just cause. Well, you can imagine it, it sounds completely insane. I mean, the Nazis exterminated the Jews. The president is a Jew. I mean, it sounds you, it's hard to believe that any Russian would actually believe that. But okay, I guess well, if, that's if you his... look at public opinion data from the last surviving independent public opinion survey organization in Russia, Livada.ru, a lot of Russians actually surprisingly many Russians buy into this, or at the very least approve of. Putin's policies. Wow. Let's go to, we referenced NATO in the context of all of these other countries that moved into NATO and sort of the specter of NATO as Putin would see it at his doorstep. But we're also, he, uh, this didn't quite go his way. I mean, Certainly. since since this war broke out, many countries have said that they would like membership in NATO now. Um, countries that were, I think, otherwise unthinkable. Sweden, I think, characterizes itself as a neutral nation, yeah. would like to be a Switzerland of sorts in Scandinavia. But both uh, Sweden and Norway's north border Russia almost. Yeah, Norway's already in NATO. Finland is the new applicant, yeah. Norway is in NATO. Sweden is not. Finland is not and has not been. But there's a long history of Finnish relations, obviously, with Russia. Sure. So but this Finland has, has had now a, applied to, for membership. They're Wow. Right, with just yeah. Turkey holding on, and yes. he is courting Erdogan at the same time. So, and Erdogan's obviously holding on to his request, which is may not work so well. Uh, in any event, let's talk a little bit about what Russia lost in terms of its economy and its esteem when Ukraine signed the papers and became independent. Now, I know it was at coterminous with the Belarus and everything, but let's concentrate for just a minute, yeah. just 
on Ukraine unless there's no other way to describe it without including some of those other countries. I would argue that at the end of 91, when the Soviet Union broke up, Russia didn't lose anything. Russia lost on the 24th of February or in 2014. They lost the country that used to be quite friendly to Russia and now sees Russia as its enemy number one. So in the mindset of these kind of Soviet imperialists, yes, they lost a great deal of territory. They lost the buffer state. They value strategic depth. It is true that the near-fatal invasions of Russia or the Soviet Union occurred from Europe, traversed this terrain, and this terrain, uh, this the, these lands, Ukraine, is the critical buffer that Russian strategic thinkers think is critical to the security and well-being of their country. In practical military terms, uh, with modern weapons, uh, if they really are thinking about a big war, it's it's very outdated thinking, let's put it this way. If you know, NATO really goes to war with Russia, then missiles will rain on Russian territory uh, in the space of, be it five minutes or 10 minutes, will not make a whole lot of difference. That said, you can't dismiss these kind of long-standing habits, ideas about national security and perceptions that Western Europe is a hostile place, NATO is a hostile organization. It's not something that people of Putin's generation can really put aside and say everything is fine. We'll just accept NATO at our doorstep. You know, unfortunately, uh, this is kind of the reality we'll have to live with. I would say that by unleashing this war, Russia, Putin have lost a lot more because now Ukraine will be a country of 40-some million people. I don't know how many people are still left, armed to the teeth, already carrying out strikes inside Russia. Yes, remarkably successfully, yeah. too. And NATO is basically waging a war, proxy war, by arming Ukraine, supplying it with seemingly endless uh, types of weapons, some of them quite advanced. And here's the result for Putin. But I don't think that Putin really is going to give up anytime soon. I think this conflict is going to go on for a long time. So it's much too early to talk about what Russia has lost and what you know, Ukraine has gained. Ukraine hasn't gained a whole lot here. Well, before we move off of the topic of Putin painting the West as enemy number one, I mean, I think in fairness, uh, Putin and his cronies and the oligarchs raided what was rightfully that of the natural resources of Russia, and that should be owned by the Russian people. And uh, they invested their wealth elsewhere than Russia. As we saw, once the sanctions were imposed, uh, much of the money was in you know, banks in Switzerland, in the United States, in London. And perhaps that was a deliberate effort or strategy. But it is interesting that the popular narrative in Russia, just like in a lot of countries, is very different from the reality of the people who are running the country, who are heavily invested in foreign countries, own property there, vacation there, have mistresses there. So it's an interesting commentary on how populations are persuaded to believe something that is absolutely false and believe it. Yeah, it's true. The remarkable thing is that for millions of Russians, uh, if they want to know, the villas in the south of France, the children in uh, boarding school in Switzerland, boarding schools wherever, <laughs> it's no secret. The leader currently imprisoned of Russian opposition and the great corruption crusader Alexei Navalny has published multiple investigations of senior Russian officials and what they have inflicted on their country, how much they have stolen. I would say that, you know, a lot of, the, you know, not, not many of them will be going to visit their properties in Italy or France or in the UK. That's for sure. super yachts. Yeah, super yachts. Although apparently uh, I read that these super yachts are quite expensive to maintain and not... Uh, the particles, easy. it's a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that said, I think, you know, the sanctions were, you know, the right, still are the right policy. But we should not overestimate the extent to which sanctions will limit, cripple the ability of Russia to wage this war. The Russian economy has contracted about 3.5%, I believe, last year. You know, it's not the end of the world. Uh, the Russian economy has not performed well for many years. 
They survived two years starvation and the blockades. All that, but they in, prepared to wait it out. You know, the Russian people are notoriously patient. The real incomes have been declining in Russia for about eight or nine years. Wow. But again, to Putin's credit, in a sense, he has a very capable economic team. And within the certain parameters of this being a war economy, they have managed their finances quite well. So he's got a capable team of technicians who are enabling him to wage this war. Plus, don't forget that we say that Russia is isolated. Well, Russia is isolated in Europe. Russia has lost its biggest market in Europe, that's for sure. But then there's the rest of the world. Russia still has a lot of oil. I mean, clearly it's going to take a hit as a result of the sanctions that have been imposed. But Russia has a lot of resources. You know, we're still struggling to contain North Korea. We're still struggling to contain Iran after, what, 40 years of sanctions? 40 years, yeah. And Iran Although it's is, not going well there either right now for the great leaders. It's not going well, but don't forget that, you know, Iran is producing sophisticated military equipment that it is selling to Russia that's after 40 years of being under Western sanctions, U.S. sanctions. You know, extrapolate from that to the size of the Russian economy, the resources that the Putin regime has at his disposal. China's appetite for oil. Appetite for oil. Countries adapt. They adjust to sanctions and find ways to get around them, to re-engineer certain technologies that they're not able to procure otherwise. There was a story recently in the news that, for example, the tiny Armenia is importing a lot more washing machines and refrigerators suddenly. Not because they're doing more laundry. It's because they're they're re-exporting appliances to Russia where they're being cannibalized for elect for their electronics. That and who better to manage a workaround to sanctions than a group of people who grew up probably having to rely on the black market for a lot of things inside the Soviet Union and, and stealing, gangsters. And uh, stealing Western technologies, don't forget that. stealing Western technologies so, and not needing new ones, you know, being older vintage yeah, so things. They have the res unfortunately, they have the resources they writ large, you know, the technical talent and so on. A lot of people have left, but it's still a country of 140, some five, whatever million people. Even with a brain drain, it rejuvenates. A, exactly, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, the fact that this is a proxy war, and that leads us back to Iran yep. next, because while the United States and NATO and a lot of nations are supplying weaponry to Ukraine, the other side of that, as you mentioned, is that Iran is doing this. Now, Iran, as a matter of geography, is close to Russia, yeah. and they have long-term relationship going back hundreds of years. Not and always a good relationship. Let's, let's right. be clear about <laughs> there that. There have been some yeah. vicissitudes, right? But what do you see when you look at this relationship right now, where it might go and what it might really be below the surface in terms of Russia and Iran? I think over time, Iran is not going to be a client of Russia. It never has been, and I don't think it will be, ever will be. But this is a relationship of two countries that share a good deal in terms of mutual interests. For them, for both of them, the United States is their enemy number one. Uh, the United States has imposed major sanctions on both, or is, in the case of Russia, has led the imposition of sanctions by Europe and the United States. The United States is the country that is spreading a hostile ideology that is unacceptable. Uh, Democracy. Yeah, to the ruling regimes in Tehran and in Moscow. They have a number of shared interests, for example, in Syria, where they've been propping up together the regime of Bashar al-Assad. But at the same time, Iran, I would say, oh, and Iran, of course, is selling these drones that the Russians need badly to prosecute the war in Ukraine. And who knows what the Russians are selling to Iran in exchange. There have been references in Russian press, suggestions that, well, perhaps we should sell uh, Iranians certain technologies that they want that would enable them 
to uh, hold at risk the United States because the United States is selling to Ukraine technologies, weapons that are able to uh, strike at the Russian heartland, this kind of tit for tat. Mm -hmm. Assured mutual destruction. Yes, Mm -hmm. by proxy. (laughs) (laughs) It's complicated. Um, Yeah, who knows? I mean, clearly, Iranians probably want some technologies in exchange. I have not seen any reporting on Russia selling, actually, advanced tech uh, since the start of the war. But I, you know, they say I wouldn't roll it out. Well, I'm not going to predict the course of Iranian domestic politics, but I would say that this is a relationship that is of mutual interest that will continue. Neither country is going to be uh, particularly beholden to the other um, in in this situation. But But things might be different with China. Yeah, China is a different story. China needs oil and a lot of it. And Russia is selling a lot of it, and China is able apparently to extract significant price concessions. Going back to the days of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and China were in a state of their own Cold War, in addition to the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West. That didn't end well for the Soviet Union because waging two Cold Wars at once, once against one against the West and the other against China, uh, basically broke the back of the Soviet economy and uh, the Soviet military machine. Uh, and I think Putin, well, to the extent that I can guess, Um, has learned that lesson because he's really made relations with China his number one priority. That's the the top priority in his foreign policy. Yes, he said Chairman Xi is his best friend. That's what they say. Still, um, I think he, as as I read the situation, Chairman Xi, I'm not an expert on China by any means, but President Xi, rather, he's he's not going to do any favors to Putin that he doesn't want to do. So So you're saying he has the upper hand in this relationship, far more power. He definitely has the upper hand. With the break with the West, uh, Putin has really cornered himself because there aren't many major powers left who could really be his partners. His relationship with India, too, is becoming quite, let's just say, interesting. How so? Well, India clearly is the rising power in Asia. There's a longstanding relationship between the Soviet Union, Russia, and India. And the Soviet Union and Russia have been major suppliers of military hardware and technology to India. But the Indian leadership is now looking beyond Russia. It's the relationship with the United States that has a lot more to offer to India in terms of investment, economic development, you know, the whole reordering of supply chains, for example. Uh, Russian-Indian trade, which has picked up with Russian oil deliveries to India, really was a fraction of what the U.S.-Indian trade uh, has been in recent years. And uh, increasingly, Russia doesn't have a whole lot of appeal, uh, of attraction, of things to offer to India because India is looking to diversify its sources of weaponry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still Russia still accounts for a lot, but over the past six, seven years, deliveries of Russian weapons to India have declined significantly. And very notably, last September, if I'm not mistaken, Prime Minister Modi publicly lectured Putin, which I think is an indication of the balance in that relationship. He lectured Putin, now is not the time for war, as I told you many times in our telephone conversations. So clearly, we see who has the upper hand there. That's fascinating. Uh, He's also, referring to Putin, he's been courting a relationship with Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis. Both, obviously, these are petro-states. What would his strategic interests be in a relationship with the Saudis, and what might be the long and short-term consequences of that? Both countries depend extremely heavily on their energy exports. For Russia, it's oil and gas. For the Saudis, it's oil. They are the two biggest energy powers, except for the United States, of course. They have a difficult history. During the Cold War, during the war in Afghanistan, the Saudis actually backed the Afghan Mujahideen. You know, I think uh, we did too. Yeah, yeah. But the Saudis were also, you know, very important, both as funders and as uh, you know, conduits. That clearly uh, did not endear the Saudis to the Soviets. But I would say that with the emergence of the United States 
as a major oil producer and exporter, depending on the year, the biggest oil exporter, thanks to the shale revolution about 12 years ago, suddenly the Saudis and the Russians acquired a common adversary in global energy markets because the United States challenged their position in energy markets, even though these bad memories clearly survive from the 1980s and so on, from the war in Afghanistan, Soviet war in Afghanistan, let's be clear about that. Yes, there have been so many. Yeah. They, I believe in 2016, Saudis and the Russians have formed this cartel between uh, the OPEC and Russia. So it became OPEC Plus. Plus, right. And they began to coordinate their policies in global oil markets. So they have a shared interest in managing that aspect of the global economy. The Saudis, of course, have a difficult relationship with us because of our concern about a variety of things. The Saudis probably are not happy with the United States pivoting from the greater Middle East toward Asia Pacific, and the United States looking to let's just say, diminish or shed its role as the security manager in the greater Middle East region. And I don't believe that they expect for a minute that Russia would supplant the United States as the provider of weapons, as the provider of know-how and so on. But, you know, it's still uh, an important actor on the world stage, a country that they need to have good relations with at this point, despite the Western sanctions, plus they can probably benefit from Russia being so isolated. Let's go back for a minute and let's talk about when this war may have become more attractive to Putin. And I think we all remember the sudden emergence of information about the leak of classified information, uh, the report uh, which was made to Congress by the Inspector General Michael Atkinson, then of the intelligence community, and all of this from calls and meetings between Trump and then newly elected President Zelensky. Do you believe that this played any role in uh, making Putin think that the timing for an invasion might be ripe? The phone call, of course, occurred much earlier during the Trump presidency. And the war started under Biden during the Biden presidency. So, and there, and there was a lot that happened there. Clearly, to my mind, Putin was quite content to have Trump in the White House. There was some kind of a, you know, special relationship between Trump and Putin. Something forged in that two-hour meeting with no U.S. interpreters and nobody else? No, yeah. So, who knows? I think Trump's lack of interest in Ukraine, Trump's, you know, quid pro quo, approach to Ukraine, very critical view of NATO, and some have alleged plans to get out of NATO. Uh, all of that was probably music to uh, Putin's ears. Now, why did he decide to invade or step up his aggression against Ukraine? We don't really know. We can only speculate. I'm guessing that there were several factors driving that. Probably Putin came to the realization that the so-called Minsk or Normandy, the, the negotiations about the fate of eastern Ukraine that began shortly after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 were leading nowhere, that he could not get what he wanted, and that is control of Ukrainian domestic politics and foreign policy. He could not turn Ukraine into a satellite of Russia through those talks. So he probably realized that wasn't going anywhere. Maybe the withdrawal from Afghanistan contributed to his perception that the United States is in retreat. Possibly his perception of Biden as old and really not capable of mobilizing the kind of response that the Biden and his administration have been able to mobilize. Possibly perceptions that the Europeans were so dependent on Russian gas and would basically fold quickly, all of that taken together. Right, because of the pipelines. The pipelines, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. So all of that taken together possibly kind of moved him to make the decision. 
The other part that I think we cannot discount has to do with the fact that he probably thought about the next 10 years of his life. Right. He's exceeded um, the average lifespan in right. Russia. And, you know, he had kind of built himself into the great leader, a successor to other great Russian leaders. And possibly, again, you read that article from the summer of 21 that he wrote about the fate of Ukraine and Russia, this kind of history, or rewriting of the history of bilateral relations. And you can imagine that he convinced himself that he can be that man, that great Russian leader who can put the broken empire back together. Maybe that's what pushed him to. He realized, you know, I'm going to be 70 next year, you know, thinking about his legacy. Uh, don't forget also that apparently he was getting very inflated reports of uh, capabilities of the Russian armed forces mm. and also apparently very skeptical reports of the capabilities and the fighting spirit mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the Ukrainian military. Well, when you poison people who disagree with you, everyone's afraid that's, to. That's right. They tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. So perhaps that wasn't the exact moment of kickoff, and maybe it was this amalgam of things. You and I have talked in a pre-call a little bit about some of the optimism that we observe um, being reported about the possible end to this war. Yeah. And um, it, it seems that that's probably a bit premature, and I believe you share that view as well, that this may not, no matter what we're seeing right now, that this may not go the way we think it should in the fullness of time. And do you want to talk a little bit about that and what factors contribute to your belief that it, we, it may not be won by the Ukrainians ultimately? In a sense, Ukraine has already won a great victory. If you think about where we were a year ago, how we perceived the balance between the two and how we projected how the war would go and how it would end within the space of one week or so, Ukraine has won a great victory. That said... I am afraid that this war will continue for another year, longer. I, I can't predict when it will end. Putin clearly still has a lot of resources at his disposal. He may not have the smart weapons that enable him to hit targets with precision inside Ukraine, but he will just continue his indiscriminate bombardment of Ukrainian cities and towns and pieces of critical infrastructure, which makes it even worse. Mm, to break the will. Yeah, we've seen that already. He is not in the position where he can say, okay, I've a mission accomplished. I can, I, I can now you know, sign some kind of a piece of paper mm. and move on. That's just not an option for him, especially after he portrayed in the official narrative Ukrainians as Nazis, mm -hmm. making peace with Nazis. Right. Not a good look. Right. For Ukraine, again, uh, from what we know about Ukrainian public opinion, it has come together on the platform of national resistance, of opposition to Russia, a strong support for President Zelensky, who's turned out to be a far, far more impressive leader than we Shockingly, thought. right? Shockingly, yes. Shockingly. Yes. an actor. But, but, yeah, but, but right. you know, really kind of stepped into the role and became not the father of the nation, but the leader of the nation. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And Ukrainian public opinion, having waged this war with so much blood shed, is not going to allow any leader to just say, okay, we've gone as far as we can and we're going to stop here. So there is no that literal and kind of figurative middle ground where the two could come together. There's also not a major power, world leader, who could step in and say, enough is enough. Let's just draw the line here and, and mm -hmm. call it quits. You know, it's not a situation between, you know, Arabs and Israelis when, you know, Kissinger would engage in his shuttle diplomacy and the United States would say, okay, done. Everybody comes to Camp David and, yeah, you know, shakes hands and yeah, goes home and yeah, calm yeah, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, nothing like that. And Ukraine is getting more and more resources. They're not prepared to stop. So I, I'm afraid that we're in this for, for, for a long time. I cannot predict when and what can 
force these two to, to say, okay, it's time to negotiate. Um, Putin could die. He could die. Uh, or he, he could live for another 20 years. That's a terrible thought. <laughs> well, we, uh, you know, we, we have to prepare ourselves for that. Uh, we, we, we can't. He bet. works out, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story from my time in government. When a, you know, way back more than 10 years ago, a, uh, a well-placed Russian told me that Putin was on his deathbed. That he had like three months to live. Right, with reports of his death. <laughs> greatly exaggerated. <laughs> Apparently greatly exaggerated. So, yes, he could die. I don't believe that there can be a coup from within the elite. The entire Russian elite has now been implicated in this tragedy, in this crime. Well, and then if you believe what we've been told on this podcast, they're part of the corrupt system and they've enriched themselves by stealing what is rightfully that of the Russian people. So That's all they've part been of soiled to such an extent that they're part of this. Yeah. And they can't easily back out because what would they do next? Um, they could be thrown in jail for probably any number of legitimate things. Well, you're a lawyer, you know, talk about, you know, war crimes trials. I mean, those investigations are underway. Evidence collection on the ground, all the things that yeah. you would hope yeah. would occur in this circumstance. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't know. I mean, there's a question of how long can the West support Ukraine? Because whereas Russia has the resources, still a sizable economy, uh, natural resources and so on, to uh, prosecute this war, Ukrainian economy really has sustained terrible damage. And based on what the government of Ukraine tells us publicly, it needs somewhere, you know, three, five billion dollars a month in external support to just continue operating at the basic level. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me about this tonight. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Our guest tonight has been Eugene Rumer of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We will also hyperlink some of his testimony before Congress, which was about Russian meddling, uh, still relevant today. So thank you again for speaking to us. And thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Our next luncheon will feature Raj Day and Mike Axelrod, and that'll be on February 22nd at the Army-Navy Club. You can find a link to register for that program in our notes. If you'd like to reach us and send us comments and feedback, you can contact us on Twitter, at least for now. You can reach us there at ABA NATSEC. And you can also send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Our writer and producer is Mia Lisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Burkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.